0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com.
1: Guys, Brexit is almost here. You've all wanted it. You've all been waiting for it. We are just weeks away. But there are a couple of stumbling blocks that are leading to uh, a potentially even more fraught Brexit uh, once January 1st comes along. That's what we're going to talk about today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, here as of late with my two favorite people, the Gens. How are you, the Gens?
0: Hi, Alex Ward. <laughs> hey, Alex.
1: Worldly fans have been interested in Brexit, and we figured before the year runs out, this is our penultimate episode of the year, we should give them the Brexit coverage they've been craving for and deserve. So, uh, before we get to Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, and Ursula von der Leyen, um, the EU Executive Chief, uh, and my favorite name in world politics, um, let's lay out the land of what happened. Because from my vantage point, there was a Brexit earlier this year. Like, I remember the UK flag coming down and all that. So, <laughs>
0: right. It, like, didn't we do this already? <laughs> right.
1: So, I'm going to go to Jen Kirby here. What happened from when that flag came down to like where we're at in this moment where I'm seeing that they're supposed to be striking a deal, but there isn't a deal?
2: Yeah. So, I will recap as quickly as possible. Essentially, Brexit has always been in two phases. And the first phase was negotiating the terms of the divorce. Um, and setting a deal, and that was the first Brexit deal. Like, how are we going to break up, and how? What? How will that work? Then the second phase was after we divorce, we're going to figure out our future relationship. Do we want to be friends? Do we want to be friends with a free trading agreement? All of that stuff. And you so, wanted to say
0: friends with benefits, didn't you? I,
2: I did, but I went <laughs> you, with something that's a little bit more apt. And,
1: no, friends <laughs> with benefits is, the, is how we're going to start talking about this.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and so do they. So. Basically, the first phase of Brexit was the divorce. And that's what happened at the beginning of this year, right? Uh, Boris Johnson was able to renegotiate the deal that everyone hated. He got a massive majority in Parliament in elections last year, passed it, and the UK formally left the European Union. But then it entered into this standstill period where basically nothing changed in practice beyond the fact that the UK was no longer formally in the EU, but they followed the same rules. And the the point of that was to allow the UK and the EU to give them time to negotiate this future trading relationship and all the other issues like security cooperation, you know, air travel, all kinds of other treaties that normally were taken care of in the EU. And now, because the UK is out, has to figure out what the relationship will look like. And so that's what they were supposed to be doing in this 11th month period because the transition period ends December 31st, 2020, which is just a few short weeks away.
1: Yeah, so we're 3 weeks I believe actually from today, right? Is December 31st. So Jen Williams, uh why are we nearing this deadline? What the heck happened? There's a, there's a lot of time in that was 11 months. Um why are, why are we at like a break-in point?
0: Yeah, um so uh, I will uh defer to Jen on a lot of the uh, incredibly detailed specifics on this, but like there are a few kind of weird sticking points that are really big deal uh, that are making them not come to an agreement. Um, one of them is fish and fishing. I'm sorry, fish? Uh, yeah, fish, like the swim in the sea kind. Uh, not the the hippie band that used to be the Grateful Dead. Um, oh, that, see, that uh, I would that, follow. That is n- <laughs> mm, I see. Mm, see what you, see what you did there? Yeah, it's clever. Thank very you. clever. Thank you. Um, yeah, so basically, uh, without getting too wonky here, uh, the UK you know, wants to have more access and more control, having its own boats in its own waters for fishing uh, off its own waters. Uh, Previously, you know, as part of the EU, like it had to share those waters with the EU. The EU would like to continue having lots of access to those UK fishing waters to get those delicious fishes. Um, And it's apparently a really big deal. Like it's not just this minor thing. Jen, you wrote like in your piece that fishing actually accounts for like a really small part of the UK economy, but it's this really huge, like outsized issue for some reason. Can you can you kind of get into that and explain what's going on?
2: Yeah, it's an, actually an outsized issue in many ways for both the United Kingdom and the European Union, because even though it's a small industry, it's a very politically sensitive one. Um, and it's also of national importance. Um, the UK, there was a economic consultancy firm, which to be fair, they're biased because they would like EU and the UK to make a deal so that financial services, which is a huge part of the British economy, (laughs) also has a deal. But they were saying, like, all of this holdup on fish accounts for about 0.002% of the UK's economic output. And if they don't make a deal, then all this British fish, they'll be, like, nowhere to export it. So Right, because they don't have a
0: trade deal with the EU, which is where they sell, like, most of those fish.
2: Right. So, like, every, like, British ban woman and child will need to like double or triple their like fish intake. So it's <laughs> sort of a little silly, but the the point is it's sort of seen as you know, an an issue of national sovereignty. And the whole point of Brexit was, you know, reclaiming our sovereignty. And that includes over our territorial waters. And so they want to have more access. However, EU fishermen also use and fish off those waters. And so France in particular, um, and Emmanuel Macron has said, you know, we are going to fight to have access to the waters that we used to be able to fish in. And Macron is also under a lot of political pressure right now. And so, you know, they're, there are countries in the EU that rely on the British waters as well. And so they're kind of trying to figure out a way that they can negotiate quotas or or meet somewhere in the middle, but no one wants to blink first on fishing. But the bottom line is it's sort of a very symbolically important thing that has become a a big sticking point in sort of the larger trade deal.
1: I want to signpost for for our audience really quickly that there are actually these three sticking points in terms of this the, the, the negotiations going on, and three major ones. This is one about fishing, which we'll continue to talk about, but I, I just want to get these out there. Uh, phishing, um a second one is basically a British threat to, like, m- make their industries even more competitive than EU industries because they'll be less regulated, and so the EU is worried about losing out on economic and, and jobs. Um, and the third is, like, if there is um, trade problems between the EU and, and Britain, how would they be solved um all of these would normally take a really long time to hash out but as we've noted they have about 3 weeks <laughs> um even though they've been trying for for some time uh there are other sort of minor issues and we'll get into also Ireland and Northern Ireland but for the moment like these are the three major sticking points so um sorry just want to make go ahead uh, Jen Williams but just want to make sure on on that people understood that there were these are the three issues we're be we talking about
0: yeah so fish was the first one uh, the second one as you rightly said is uh kind of the shorthanded as the level playing field. So basically, and Jen, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially kind of as Alex laid out, like they want to make sure that, you know, in a in a trade deal that both sides are playing by the same, essentially like the same rules when it comes to everything from like environmental regulations, labor regulations, things like that, so that, you know, the UK doesn't radically change its regulations to make its, you know, businesses uh, you know, more competitive and, you know, therefore hurts the EU. The EU is saying, no, you can't do that. The UK is saying, hey, we can do whatever we want. That's the whole point of leaving. We're a sovereign country. We don't want to follow your rules. And so they're trying to kind of figure out a way to find some sort of middle ground on that, right?
2: Yeah. So this is in some ways the the biggest sticking point and has kind of everyone knew that it would be this way because it is also kind of an in some respects, an ideological issue. Because again, the UK, the whole point of Brexit was that they didn't want to follow EU rules. And right. so when the EU says, oh, you need to follow the rules as the terms of a free trade agreement, they're like, wait a second, we left. And so, but it, it sort of gets to the issue of trust more than anything, because the EU has said, You know, right now, the UK and the EU are more or less aligned because the UK just left the European Union, and they also helped to shape some of those rules that are in place. And the UK has been, you know, more or less clear that they don't have a desire to massively subsidize industries or slash environmental or labor regulations all that much. And the the EU doesn't really— and 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 on the alternative side the uk is like oh well once we follow the rules then you're going to make all these really really onerous rules and then we're going to be stuck and on the eu side like no we're not we're we're reasonable we want to be competitive too like this is a logical thing and so the idea that the two sides are going to diverge so you know, dramatically after this transition period is kind of a fallacy, but yet they don't really trust each other. And so that's creating this suspicion that is making it hard to come to agreement. The reality is that, you know, the UK is saying, oh, this is a, you know, violation of our sovereignty and the EU is not respecting us. But level playing field is an issue in all trade deals. Like this is not something the EU cooked up to torment the EU. I mean, it was an issue when the U.S. Uh, renegotiated NAFTA recently right. with Mexico. They wanted Mexico to raise their labor standards to make to you know make a level playing field. And so it's sort of silly, but yet it is the big big hurdle to getting anything done.
0: Yeah, just to that point, I wanted to read this quote. Um, this is uh, in an article in the BBC today. <clears throat> the political editor is uh, writing about Brexit, uh, and she said one diplomat told me, quote, it's dystopian. The UK wants to have the absolute freedom to do things it will probably never do, apart from some tinkering. And the EU wants to protect itself from things that will probably never come. Like, that's exactly the point you're making, right? Like, the EU is probably not going to put all these like crazy new onerous rules on the UK. The UK is probably not going to radically change its own regulations, but they don't trust each other enough that they won't do it. So they're just like not coming to an agreement at all. Exactly.
1: But it's not really about now, right? It's about the future. Like, it, you, of, to make a deal, both sides are going to play nice and and say the right things and, and make sort of agreed-upon stuff at the moment. And But over time, this can change. If, an, if a UK industry does super well or, or an EU one or an industry in the EU does really well, um, they're going to try to protect it. That is kind of how this works. Or they're going to try to make it more competitive than others. And so, like, you see violations in free trade deals all the time all the time. And it's because certain countries want to make that industry grow because they feel like they can ride that to sort of more jobs, et cetera. So I don't get like this notion that this is somehow concocted. Like there will be strife on this down the line. There's going to be something that happens or some industry that pops up or um, that becomes more important and one of one or the other will regulate a little bit less. I'd I'd probably bet on the UK to regulate less than the EU. Um, but and then there'll be uh, tons of problems here. I guess I am I'm, I'm confused as to why there's this belief that like this is somehow fanciful.
2: I, I think I think what you're asking, if if I'm getting you correctly, is sort of of course the EU and the UK understand that there's going to be some degree of divergence. But one point: this is not just any old trade deal. This is a extraordinarily generous trade deal for zero tariffs and zero quotas on every, like on all goods. So that's not what most people negotiate in a trade deal where you go line by line, you know, what are we going to do percentages of dairy that we're going to trade? So that's one issue. It's a very generous trade deal. So that means that would, if the UK diverged a lot, that could undercut the EU more than sort of another violation. But it then get back it gets back again to the issue of trust, right? It's sort of this suspicion, you know, the UK, particularly the Brexit rhetoric, has made that EU out to be the sort of, you know, I don't know, stickler for the rules that is constantly out to sort of rein in the UK and make it a vassal state. And the EU just doesn't trust the UK because they haven't really actually proved to be all that much of a trustworthy partner. I mean, <laughs> Brexit was a unilateral decision that was, you know, UK did Brexit. It was done to the EU. They're in this mess because of the UK's decision-making recently. And we can get more into Northern Ireland stuff, but they passed a, uh tried to present a legislation that would actually violate the original Brexit deal. So I think this sort of gets to the third sticking point, which is the EU wants to find a way to be able to hold the UK accountable in case they do break the rules. Like, how are they going to negotiate and deal with disputes if they do come up. And that's the third sticking point which is they don't haven't quite figured out a way that will create a cushion so that if someone does go ahead and diverges too much too much or breaks a rule how they're going to be punished and what penalties will exist. Will they be tariffs? Will there be a dispute resolution? And so that's the third sticking point is they don't even know how they're going to resolve any problems when they come up.
0: So my question for you, Jen, uh, on that, and I don't I don't know if you know the answer, and if you don't, that's fine, um, but you pretty much know everything on Brexit that there is to know. But uh, like, why can't they just like go to the WTO, the World Trade Organization? Like, isn't that the body that everyone is supposed to use? Like, the, if they're too, like, they're not in the same... Union anymore, and they're just like two like, a sovereign country and a sovereign block. Like, why not just use the WTO? Well, that is what will happen if there is no deal. <laughs> if there is no they agreement, w- otherwise, right? There is no it. agreement. They will go to
2: WTO rules, which means whatever the you know tariffs are on set by the WTO on tomatoes, that's what they say. And the reason why that is not a good thing is because the UK exports like 250 billion, you know, worth of goods or worth of exports to the EU a year. They are a massive massive trading partner. The after 40 years in the European Union, businesses are used to doing frictionless trade with right. Europe and that is not going to happen. And this is sort of the key is that a deal was going to create some friction that wasn't there before because the closer the relationship, the less friction. But if you have a clean, hard break with nothing, then you're introducing all of these things that businesses have never, ever dealt with before on both the UK and EU side.
1: I, just to use a really sort of rough example, for for especially for listeners, like think of it, the US court-like system, right? If you have a dispute between two parties, you usually start at a local level or a state level, wherever it is. I usually go to Judge Judy. But, I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> I'm a Judge Joe Brown guy, but, you know, teach their own. You go to a local level and then like, if it really needs to escalate, it goes to like Supreme Court. The WTO, in a really rough way, is like the Supreme Court of global trade. Um, And usually in deals like this, you want to avoid that, right? Because it takes a really long time. It becomes highly politicized. You don't have that much control. And so like, one of the most contentious issues always in trade deals is, like, the rules over enforcing the rules. And that's what this third dispute's about. Um, and so, like, in the U.S. and Korea trade agreement, for example, like, there's a dispute mechanism. Um, and that's what they're, I think, they're, that's what they're fighting for here, is, like, to to be able to solve the issues at the local level, let's say, between the two of them. So they don't have to get the WTO involved and have it become this incredibly tense-filled project. But, of course, like, Rules over enforcing the rules is a really hard thing to to do, especially when you already have all these other uh, problems swirling about. So okay, so I want to so I want to recap again. We had um, rules over the rules. Two, we have level playing field, like making sure the industries are playing on this the same well field. Nailed it. Um, and then three, <laughs> we have <laughs> aptly uh, named <laughs> right. And then three, we have uh, the fisheries issue, which. Um, I guess I wanted to get into just a little bit because I wanted, like, why this is a bit more contentious than I think uh, we discussed.
0: Yeah. So, when we were talking about this episode before we recorded, Alex made a really great point And I, like, it really clarified for me why, like, fish, of all things, is a really big deal. So, say it again.
1: Sure. So, it is undoubtedly, like, 95 to 99% about economics, right? People in France particularly would like to have access to British waters when the UK is out, it will have a 200-mile, nautical-mile zone. And so, in theory, or at least even in legal practice, you can't you can't have it used. So, like, that's what's really at stake here. Like, the people want to use those fisheries. And you know, if you talk to people in the UK and even read the reports, they're like, yeah, we get that they'll still use the waters. We're not going to, like, you can't put a wall around it, right? Um, okay. Build, so, the <laughs> build the wall. Build the wall in the water. Okay, so there's that. But a real cultural issue here, and, like, underlying all of this, is that... Europe is incredibly, that Europe really remembers what it was like to be hungry not that long ago. Um, World War II, there's still a large generation of people who lived through devastation and danger and horror and and hunger. And after that, Europe spent a lot of time, European nations spent a lot of time safeguarding their agricultural industries. The agricultural industries are incredibly important, receive tons of subsidies and then fishing and all other kinds of things. And even if it's not efficient, in fact, it isn't market efficient. <laughs> um, but like these, you know, dairy farmers and fishers and um, farmers, all of these people are, are still considered the backbone of European economies because the one thing that the historical memory of, of, of modern historical memory of Europe um, tells us is that like, we cannot go hungry again. Uh, for your worldly bingo cards, I am going to bring up like my family in Spain, but like my grandparents talked about this constantly. Talked about like, well, they lived through the Spanish Civil War too, but then, and World War II. Um, but like in both of those episodes, even though Spain wasn't in World War II, they were just like, it was really hard to get food. We grew up hungry and it got to the point that like when you asked if, if my like grandfather gave you food and you didn't like it, he'd be like, you know, he'd do the whole stereotypical thing, like, in my day um, kind of <laughs> deal, right? But, like, it wasn't just idiosyncratic. It was something that happened across European cities. It is something that is truly deep and powerful. And so any discussions, whether it's fish, whether it's tomatoes, whether it's um, whatever it is, uh, dairy, uh, it will always, always be contentious. And it will always speak to the core of, like, this horrific European memory um, and, and the politics of the day, it cannot be overestimated. And so fish seems kind of like weird, and and it is right. I mean, um, but like let's think about what Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen when they talked on Wednesday, what they were eating. They were eating scallops and turbo, uh, right? And it was oh really? Yes, and it was partially because of like to remind about the fisheries issue in a sort of cheeky. But it is also speaks to the fact that like do not forget what this is all about this is about food. This is about making sure people stay fed um, despite recent decades where people just could not get the food they wanted. End rant. But I, but I think that's a really sort of important underlying issue that's not discussed enough. Um, okay. And with that, I guess we'll go uh, to the break and we'll talk about uh, borders and then um, why this is all just really, really weird. Welcome back worldly listeners. We just talked about the three sticking points uh in the Brexit EU trade deal that is uh that they need to make before January 1st because then is that's when we actually have Brexit, right? It's been 4 years uh plus, but we're finally going to have Brexit. Uh but there's one more issue I think we should talk about before we get into all of that. Um which is we've always been talking about the issue with the the Northern Ireland-Ireland border. Um, From my reading, Kirby, it looks like they actually came to some sort of compromise on this issue.
2: Yeah. So if we go back to first phase of Brexit, that, that was the major sticking point there, right, of what to do about the border on the island of Ireland between Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, and the Republic of Ireland, which is a country that is part of the EU. And that land border is the new border between... The UK and the EU and it also happens to be a very politically sensitive one because it is the integral to an ongoing peace process um, and integral to the peace process is keeping that border free of customs checks any sort of physical infrastructure which is very hard to do if you have the UK and the EU following different customs rules and trading schemes
1: why is having an open border important to like making sure that a conflict is settled?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, because the conflict was fought over sort of the status of Northern Ireland. So on one side you have unionists, um, who tend to be Protestant, but that's not always the case, but the unionists believe that they're part of great Britain and that it is one big union. Then you have the nationalists who tended to be Catholic, but again, not always. And they believe that Northern Ireland is actually part of Ireland and it is one big country. And so essentially they were fighting for unification to bring Northern Ireland into Ireland to unite as one country. And in the later part of the 20th century, there was physical conflict in Northern Ireland over this this question of, you know, are they part of the United Kingdom or are they part of of Ireland? And so in 1998, uh, the United Kingdom, Ireland the European Union, um, with help from the United States. And of course, the factions in Northern Ireland reached a peace agreement. And so as part of the peace agreement to sort of appease both sides, the border would basically be seamless. Uh, this is important because during the, tr- the the conflict, which was called the Troubles, that was a heavily fortified border because uh, members of the uh, Irish Republican Army who were uh, you know, fighting for this unification would often, you know, go across the border because uh, and so it was, you know, heavily militarized by the British army. And it was a real sort of physical manifestation of this conflict. And so taking down those fortification, those barriers was a huge part toward peace. And now, um, you know, a few decades later, the border is seamless. You do not know where Ireland begins and Northern Ireland ends. And, you know except for like the mile markers may change and stuff. And so also, you know, as part of the peace agreement, people in Northern Ireland had, you know, could get Irish citizenship, which when you're all in one big European Union, that's not a big deal because you have, you know, free travel and stuff. And so there's many EU citizens who are actually living in Northern Ireland. So for all of those reasons, they needed to keep that border open. Um, so that's sort of the the very, very long, short story. <laughs> so I guess
1: I just want to recap for folks, then like basically Northern Ireland got to be part of the UK. Um uni- so, uh, unionists, the the Beatles side got to be part of the UK, the nationalists, the U2 side, got to basically have like a, a United Ireland all in name. And um the EU, by virtue of being a single market, made it made that possible, right? Because you without the border. Uh, like you could still do trade or, or all that. And so the UK leaving in Brexit, therefore sort of like mandating a, a border for custom checks or whatever, ruins that compromise. And so that's sort of the big political issue at heart, right?
2: Right. And so that was a big holdup in the first phase of Brexit because it was the fundamental dilemma, right? If the UK wants to go and diverge from the EU and make its own, and do its own trading, that makes it harder to keep that border free and open. Like the closer the relationship, the easier it is. And so they eventually came to an agreement that Boris Johnson negotiated, which essentially set up this special protocol. And it's very complicated and not all of it is totally sort of worked out yet. Um, But it involves essentially Northern Ireland will get exceptions and sort of follow special carve outs uh, to deal to be with the European Union. But it involves checks on goods that are coming from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, essentially to make sure that nothing ends up in the single market that shouldn't. That's gotcha. sort of the shortest answer possible. Um, this was for many reasons, this is not, doesn't make people happy, particularly unionists who don't like the, the, the you know, gap or the, the barrier between, um, two parts of the United Kingdom. But this was the best way to get all of the UK out of, European Union and its institutions. So in this sense, it's good because we don't have like a fallback. We have a plan in place that even if there's no deal, there is a framework for Northern Ireland to follow. However, it is going to be very complicated if there isn't a deal because, um, you know, (laughs) not all of these elements have been worked out because it's taken a long time to implement. I think there's a lot of confusion about what the status is, but for the most part, there is hope that though there'll be some confusion and chaos and certainly Northern Ireland businesses are very, very nervous, hopefully we'll avoid the worst case scenario.
1: Yeah, Jen Williams, let's, let's go to that because there's some real world consequences from this. We're already seeing like you know, Hyundai Motor, for example, had this like one day sort of issue with with parts not being delivered and it caused a whole backlash and, and, and sort of um, Bottleneck in the trading system, and so if this is if this happens when when businesses who are used to doing all this free trading stuff, um, you know now have restrictions or don't have clarity on the rules, we could see just a, a our favorite word on the show, omnishambles, in the way the trading relationship actually ends up happening. Right? I mean, like, like what are the real world stakes of all this if we, you know, come January first?
0: Yeah, I mean, if there's no deal, you know, we're back to like the early kind of warnings that we talked about on the show a year ago, right around this time of. The the big scary stuff of a No Deal Brexit, right? So we're talking, you know, long lines for lorries, <laughs> which is what they call trucks, uh, <laughs> over there uh, across the pond. Um, Q- but lorries. like literally, yes, long queues for lorries, um, also known as long lines of trucks. Like you know, having uh, you know delayed you know border checks, having like a backup on the border because you know there's confusion over the you know the different rules. Um, of, for goods coming in. Uh, issues with, you know, Jen was mentioning earlier, like air safety, right? So like basic things like you know, who is licensed to be a doctor? <laughs> uh, you know, all kinds of like really basic things. Um, medicines. this is one big concern that people are worried about right now in the midst of the of the pandemic that that the supply of medicines could be vulnerable to disruption at channel ports, um, especially you know vaccines that have a short shelf life if they're stuck, you know, trying to get through customs and these vaccines need to be refrigerated or whatever. Um, So there's all kinds of, like, very, like, literal, tangible kind of fears of of things that could go wrong. Um, Jen was mentioning earlier, you know, cooperation on security and and data sharing, cross-border investigations, right? Like, there's so much stuff that the UK and the EU did together when they were all, you know, well together um, that they have to work that stuff out. And that's, again, you know, Jen, you've written about this a bunch of times, but th- the initial like divorce phase like took several years to work out, and then they gave themselves like eleven months to work out all the really technical stuff, and that's why we're now like I, I actually think it's kind of remarkable that they've worked out as much as they have, that we're only left with these three sticking points. To be fair, uh, they did work out a lot of stuff, but like until there's an agreement. None of that stuff matters, right?
2: So when it comes to this deal, you, Jen, you mentioned, right, that they had it didn't have a ton of time to do this. And we also have to keep in mind that we had a once-in-a-generation pandemic, which made the actual difficult work of diplomacy even harder than it normally would have been under, you know, regular circumstances. Yeah, the fact that they have gotten this far is, I, I guess, sort of impressive <laughs> in a way. But, <laughs> you know, the reality that's, that's facing them right now is that these two are important partners no matter what is going to happen. So if January 1st comes along and there isn't a deal and we see these massive disruptions, the idea that those two are just, this is the status quo is unlikely, right? They're probably going to have to somehow continue negotiating, continuing to work, um, to come to agreements because they really don't have a choice. <laughs> and of course, you know, all these economies are trying to recover from a coronavirus pandemic, right? Businesses took a really, really hard hit because of the shutdowns. And so they're already struggling. So to add this additional economic chaos, it's, it's almost unfathomable in a way of what businesses might be dealing with. And so What now they're trying to do is realizing that they might not be able to get everything signed, sealed, and delivered by the end of the year. And so, for example, the EU offered a potential sort of like temporary deal where, you know, they would allow, um, you know, planes and travel and everything to sort of stay with the status quo if the EU agreed to not diverge for the first six months with the idea of actually formalizing things later. So far, the UK hasn't said they would, would do that. So the question is, are they just going to basically? Nobody wants to blink first, and are they going to take this to the end and then chaos reigns?
1: So we've all been covering the story for a really long time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're it's here, like it's happening. Once we once we're done with the champagne or whatever it is we all do on on New Year's Eve, and like it's New Year's Day, it's happened. Um, and I'm interested in in kind of how you all. View this moment. I mean, especially you, Kirby, since you've been covering it, but I will say, I will repeat a couple of things I've said on the show before. You know, the analyst side in me just feels like, you know, this is what you got, Brexit. This was, you, you wanted this, you've got it, you voted for it. I know our dear friend Zach Beecham would say, well, it was not, it was, you know, non binding and whatever, but like, it was still a vote, it still counted. And um, despite all the misinformation and all that, like, misinformation is part of every election at this point, people lie. So, like, you this this is what you get right. This is what you get, and you should go through with it and and follow the will of the people, as as thin the margin as it was. The uh, the EU citizen in me is feeling horrible and betrayed. Like you agreed to this, UK to join the EU, you decided to be a partner, you were a member and you were part of this incredibly boring experiment in politics, but one that was still cutting edge. And that was um, meant to heal a lot of wounds and divisions that continue to fester decades after, fishes included. And to see not only the flag go down earlier this year, but also to like, you know, it's going to happen um, in three weeks. is incredibly sad. And and, and it feels, uh, I feel angry. And uh, honestly, there's a part of me that does not understand um, the EU has played hardball in many cases, but in moments like this, it's like, play even harder. Make this really, really hard. Make it harder than it has to be. Send a signal to others that this doesn't happen again, and send a signal to the UK that they made a really bad mistake. Don't ruin the, their lives in the process. But this sort of comedy, um, not the hilarious one, but like comedy um, <laughs> uh, that I'm seeing it just also just feels really tone deaf. Like this is a this is a death like in the family, honestly. Um in terms of the politics of the EU, I at least it feels to me. And so um I I as we're talking about this now and um as, as we approach January first, like I, I can't help but feel like a sense of remorse. Um but anyway, uh, uh over to you guys. Perhaps you are less morose than I am.
2: I think the EU is or was incredibly sad about the UK leaving because They do value their partnership, and the UK had a really great deal. They had the best deal of all the European Union countries. They, you know, they got to enjoy the single market, but they got to keep their own currency, and so they had a great deal, right? And the EU was incredibly sad when they left, and I think, you know, this is not to say that the EU has not played hardball. As you said, Alex, there is room for them to be more flexible, too. But, you know, again, it goes back to what I said before is the UK did Brexit and Brexit was done to the European Union. And they're kind of along for the ride, whether they like it or not. It's in their interest, of course, to have a good relationship with the UK. And, of course, the Ireland issue makes this, you know, makes it harder for them to just walk away and play hardball because that is something that they value. And Ireland is, is one of their members. But now they're just frustrated. They, got, uh, they want to be doing other things. They do not want to be doing Brexit anymore. They want to focus <laughs> on dealing with recovery from the pandemic and dealing with even some rule of law issues in some of uh, the member states at home. They have so many things they'd like to get done, and Brexit is taking up all the oxygen. And the UK is sort of acting like, how dare the EU not give us the deal that we want when the UK made the decision to leave? And the UK has... The problem is Brexit, we've talked about this before, Brexit meant all things to all people. And it sounded great, you know, take back control, reclaim our sovereignty, great new trade deals. And that all sounds really nice, except now the reality of Brexit has arrived. Like when it when it Brexit was a distant, you know, goal or dream, it was easier to kind of sell that. It's going to be a lot tougher to sell when people start seeing the realities of what it means when you can't just like pick up and spend your summer in France or whatever the case may be. And I think the UK's insistence on, you know, trying to have its cake and eat it too, of trying to get this fantastic trade deal, but also not necessarily realizing that they're out of the club. They don't have as much power anymore is only starting to sink in. And I think that's some of the the dilemma the UK faces right now. Yeah,
0: I I definitely agree with both of your sentiments. I have uh, maybe not as much personal emotional connection to to the issue as uh, you in particular Alex obviously as an EU citizen you are but uh, I I guess for me you know one of the things and I, and I, you kind of flicked at this uh, in your you know when you were talking Alex but you know there was uh, and yes disinformation and misinformation and lies are part of every campaign but you know Jen as you said like they were sold this you know the people who voted for brexit were sold this like a really shiny idea. That, you know, money that was, you know, given to the EU for whatever reason was going to be put back into the National Health Service, um, you know, Britain's, uh, you know, national healthcare care system, um, you know, that they were going to make Britain great again, right? And I think for me, it's just sad to see that, you know, that's not happening, right? And that there is all this economic disruption and that, you know, people whose, you know, livelihoods they were told were going to get better, from this um, are now in the midst of, like you said, a a horrific economic downturn because of a pandemic and are now facing this chaos. I think it's just unfortunate at a kind of very real personal level for people who, you know, even for the people who didn't vote for it and and are also caught up in this, right? Like, I think it's just kind of tragic all around. Um, I hope that they can come to some sort of agreement, right? Like, there is a possibility they could avert some of the worst of this, right? Like there is a chance they could figure this out or, you know, that the UK could potentially agree to some of those contingency plans to kind of fudge the the deadline a little bit for maybe another year until they can work out some of these sticking points. Like, I think there's still, you know, in, for me, I think there's still a little bit of hope that just because we've seen this happen so many times that they'll just kick the can down the road again and just kind of fudge the deadline again But, you know, I think there is still a chance. Like, it doesn't all have to be horrible. They could figure this out. I think the problem is that, you know, the politics um, on both sides are making each side, you know, not want to back down. And that's really difficult because someone is going to have to blink, right? Somebody is going to have to give somewhere. And right now, it doesn't look like that's going to happen.
2: Right. And I think to that point, I I do think they're going to to reach an agreement. I don't think this is going to go on forever. And I do—I actually— think that they will somehow figure something out. I mean, in part because of the politics, right? So, you know, the question is Boris Johnson, who is the UK prime minister, of course, is a political animal, right? And so he is, he rode the wave of Brexit to power. And right now he's facing a bit of a revolt from his, the right wing, which is somewhat ironic if you remember the first stage of Brexit where Boris Johnson was leading the revolt against Theresa May, but they're revolting or they had been revolting about um, COVID restrictions, right? But Boris Johnson has sort of lost his luster. Um, You know, there's some speculation that he is like never fully recovered from COVID and that's why he doesn't have a sort of exuberance and just like, you know, Boris Johnson, the showman has kind of faded a little bit from, from the scene. Um, So but Boris is facing a lot of pressure, right? And so there's some sense that perhaps he may just go for a no deal so then he can sort of blame the EU for the chaos. Like it's not his fault. It's the EU that's being intractable. At the same time, I think anyone with a brain realizes how truly damaging and devastating that could be for the UK economy and for really the entire continent and that Boris may at the last minute, you know. The UK may climb down, either reach an interim agreement or, you know, sign a a deal. And then Boris will come back and try to sell it as like, look, we held firm and then we got the EU to cave and we got the greatest deal ever. And like, here we go. Right. And so, you know, in the end and sort of save his skin that way. Um, And the EU will have to sort of hold their tongues in Brussels while, you know, Boris Johnson brags about his great deal. But that in the end of the day, this is sort of a lot of brinkmanship that will end up coming together at the very, very last minute, which has sort of been another theme of Brexit.
1: So we will uh, leave it there and see what happens after they meet again on Sunday. Uh, But thank you both for chatting about Brexit once more and uh, what a wild ride it has been. Um, So thanks to all of you for listening. And please remember to rate, subscribe and let us know how we're doing. And we will see you next week for our final episode of the year. Later, y'all.